That psalm is one of several psalms that describe a kind of gate liturgy of approaching the gates of Zion and then ultimately of the temple complex and repeat the refrain in several of these psalms, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And of course there is the physical hill, Zion, but it's getting at the picture, the imagery of moving towards God is always an upward movement. You're moving towards his presence. It's all drawing on imagery that when we sing a psalm like that, it's important for us to bring into our mind. Remember when God created the world in the beginning and he places Adam and Eve in a kind of sanctuary, he places them in a a prominent place, a kind of mountain. How do you know that? It says that the rivers flowed out from there. Rivers flow downhill. So they were uphill there in the mountain of the Lord. Adam sins and he's sent out. He's sent out and the gates are barred, as it were. It says an angel doesn't let them in because they're sinners. And that raises a question through the whole Old Testament. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And that means we're excluded. And you're waiting for the one who has that ability to pass through the gates. And then finally, the prophets are looking forward to, the Psalms look forward to, here comes the king of glory. He has a right to come in. And here approaches Jesus. And he has the right to enter and to walk up that hill. And in that way, to open the gate for us, to bring us with him. And so always when we come into the presence of the Lord, it's as if we were walking behind Jesus. We are welcomed because of Jesus. Not, of course, in a different sense, he's seated at the throne, but uh, it's that sense of being welcomed. When we come to the word, we come to a word that welcomes us as well, through faith. We come to not a condemning word now, if you're in Jesus Christ, but a word that builds us up for the life he calls us to. With that in mind, turn to John chapter 20, not the passage that's in your bulletin, So I'll give you a moment to turn. John 20. If you weren't here last week, we began to look at what are called the four perfections of Scripture. The four perfections of Scripture. These are attributes of excellence that we perceive in the Word. And last week, we looked at the perfection of authority. That scripture is the highest authority, the final authority on earth. This week we turn to the second of these perfections that were underscored during the Protestant Reformation and must be underscored in every generation. And this perfection is called the necessity of scripture. Scripture is necessary. It's needed. It is essential. And we're going to consider in what sense it is essential and how the Lord calls you to respond to that. Before that, though, let's hear a passage that is illustrative of this. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Heavenly Father, we desire to be fed through your word. We ask that you would help us by your spirit to receive all that you desire to give in order that we, through that life, might respond by living unto you. Help us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if I were to ask you in what way scripture is necessary, I imagine you would have a number of answers. But I want to be careful from the outset to make clear certain ways that we are not saying Scripture is necessary. 
Certain white scripture is not necessary. Just a few. The first is this. The written scriptures are not absolutely necessary to have every kind of spiritual knowledge or knowledge of the divine. Case in point, the unbeliever who never comes into contact with the written word of God is still accountable for the fact that there is a God. God has preserved in the human conscience and in creation a sufficient witness of the reality of there being a creator who is personal. Now we could have a long discussion another time of how is that apparent? Or the question, why doesn't all of the world acknowledge that? Romans tells us they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's not primarily intellectual. It is primarily moral and spiritual. But for instance, Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. They declare the glory and there's no language in which they are not heard. Everyone sees this and God works through that, the sense of all things having been created. Similarly, Romans 1 verse 20 Ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made so that people are without excuse. You don't need the written scriptures to know there is a God, and on top of that, you don't need the written scriptures to know that you have violated the moral law. Your conscience tells you there is a distinction between right and wrong. And even if people are fuzzy on which things are right and wrong, they nevertheless are aware that they have not lived up to their own imperfect standard. I think it was Paul Tripp who said that God doesn't even need his scripture to to condemn us. All he would need to do is to play back a recording of all the times we criticized how other people live and then show us all those instances that we do the very things that we condemn in other people. And this is said even more clearly in the book of Romans. Chapter 2, verse 14 and 16, where it says, Even Gentiles, that is, people outside of the covenant community, even Gentiles who do not have God's written law, show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts, for their own conscience and thoughts either excuse or accuse them. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. So you don't have to have the scriptures to know there's a God or to know that there's right and wrong and that you have done wrong. And I would dare say, I want to be careful in how you hear this, that the scriptures are not absolutely essential for a person to come to faith in some degree of sanctification. Now, on what grounds can I say that? I'll say that again. They are not absolutely necessary for a person to come to faith, salvation, and to have a measure of sanctification. I can say that because from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, there were believers. But that's prior to God's promises and revelation being written down, what we call inscripturated, set to writing. Think script, scribe, set to writing. And yet God was working and sustaining faith through a tradition of oral communication. But mind you, throughout that whole period, it seems the covenant community was comparatively tiny. And those ages are not famous either for the degree of sanctity among God's people. 
God can work in that way, but the fact is that he has chosen to speak into the scriptures to inspire them and then to preserve them through all time, and as we saw last week, to give them authority. And in doing that, he's taken away from us any indifference to the scripture. He's made them his primary means of work in the world, and in that way, you have no excuse to ignore them. He hasn't promised to speak to you in this time by some voice or a a prophet over there. But he has made those promises about his word. And so we're going to see this morning first three different ways. These are going to be the main divisions. Three ways the scripture is necessary in order that we come to value it and hold on to it. And then we'll look by way of conclusion at some specific responses we can give to the scripture. The first way that the scriptures are necessary is this. Without the scriptures, we would lack a full, a full and reliable foundation for all that we know of who Jesus is, what he taught, what he did. Had God worked through oral tradition, I do, as it sometimes is today, take, this is not hypothetical, someone may be, say, in prison and they don't even have a copy of the Bible, and they share the gospel with somebody else, and that person has never touched a Bible And yet that person comes to faith. God can work in that way, but how much can the person who doesn't have the scriptures accurately relate? They're working from memory, and memory is extremely weak. The reason why the apostles, within the generation of having seen Christ, wrote down what they wrote down was because God desired us to have a stable form of the message of who Jesus was. As you see in verse 30, He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. God could have worked differently, but he wanted you to have a full account of Christ's ministry, all the things God intended for you to hear, and a reliable account. Just think about that, the fact that you were able to at any moment, open up a Bible and hear the things Jesus himself said and to hear them faithfully. Not to be at the mercy of just, say, the memory of your parents who heard it from your parents. God could work that way, but your own doubt would be constantly rising up in your face. Also, when somebody comes and claims a different Jesus than the one we know, and sadly, that's a reality even to this day. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, Paul warns, if anyone comes to you preaching a different Jesus... Let him be anathema. That's the message in Galatians and 2 Corinthians. Now, that's not because there is a literal different Jesus, but there's a different account of Jesus and what he taught. So how do you know what Jesus actually taught? Well, he has preserved enough in the word that we can go to it and be confident. In this way, we ought to be so grateful that the Lord has passed down the scriptures to us. I know that for everyone here, it's not equally familiar how that occurred. And I'm going to greatly simplify something. Understand, if, if you have more knowledge about this, you'll, you'll recognize I'm cutting corners to make something very simple. But currently today, scholars have in their hands, have access to manuscripts of the New Testament. A manuscript is a copy that was written by hand, so before the printing press. And of the manuscripts that exist, there are about 5,600 Greek manuscripts. 
And then there are about 10,000 Latin manuscripts because at that time in the world when Jesus walked the earth, remember, different languages existed side by side. You have Latin over in the west, you have Greek in the middle, and then you have more off to the side relative to Jerusalem. So then you have another 10,000 manuscripts that are in Syriac and many other languages. Within the first 200 years after, that's just what has survived, paper, that's what has survived. About 24, 25,000 manuscripts have made it down to us. How long do your receipts and things even last, right? So how much was there? Within the first 200 years, it's estimated there may have been hundreds of thousands of copies and portions of the scriptures being passed around, and in more than seven languages. One of the consequences of that is that it was never as if we were playing the telephone game. It was never like that. The people who wrote the books lived long enough to see that multiple copies were made, and when there are multiple copies of a thing, you can collate. That's where you say you have ten copies of something, and... Nine of them say, for God so loved the world. And the tenth one says, for God loved the world. And that author that, or that transcriber forgot so. Well, you can collate them. But when you're dealing with hundreds and thousands of documents, we don't have to be worried. That's my point. That what we hold is an accurate representation of what the early church had in terms of what we know about Jesus. And that's the first reason then. It's necessary for us if we want to have a robust sense of who Christ was, what he's done, what he taught. But then it goes beyond Jesus to all doctrine. That's the second division here. It's necessary for you to have an objective rule for all doctrine. I mentioned last time a rule, or there's a special word that starts with C. I wonder if any of the children remember. Canon. Not the big gun but something that you use to check whether something else is straight. Whether it's straight, you hold it up to it and you check spec. Is this straight? Is this right? And the Bible allows us to put what Scripture says against any claim of truth and check spec. Is this right? Without Scripture, again, we would be at the mercy of so much. Some powerful person saying, well, you should believe it because... I said it, and I've got the Spirit more than thou. Now, that sounds ridiculous that somebody would walk around saying that now, but I mentioned last week the doctrine of the, uh, the supposed doctrine of the bodily assumption of Mary, that after she died, her body was received into heaven, which is not in the Bible anywhere, but in the 1800s, that became a dogma in the Roman Catholic Church. I wasn't there, but multiple historians attest that when Pope Pius IX was challenged on where is he getting this from, where did you get this from, even Roman Catholics were saying this isn't a part of our tradition, he responded, I am the tradition. But when you have that kind of authority, there it is. This is where we can say we will bring it all back to the scripture. God has given to us an objective rule for all things. Acts chapter 17, verse 11, describes Paul visiting for the first time a city called Berea. And in Berea, there are Jews there who haven't heard anything about Jesus. They haven't heard all these things yet. Paul's the first to come to them. And he meets with them and he explains the gospel. He tells them all these things. And it says in verse 11, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, 
For they received the word which Paul preached with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So the claims that Paul was making concerning Jesus being the fulfillment of prophecy and so forth, they went into the scripture to see, are these prophecies there? Do they comport with what we're hearing? And then as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, no doubt he said to them, look, if you doubt what I'm claiming as historical, you can go right now to Jerusalem. More than 500 people will testify to you that they saw Jesus after the resurrection. But Paul doesn't fault them for wanting to check his words against the scripture. No one is above the scripture. Even Jesus himself, who transcends time, yet in time placed himself under the authority of the Old Testament. So we have an objective rule for all doctrine that we can go back to. You see this even in the way Jesus argues at times. He's having an argument with the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 19. They want to know his views of marriage and divorce and remarriage. Simply the way he responds in the first sentence says everything. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read? And he's referring here to the scriptures and he goes on to quote God's creation in Genesis. But have you not read? Over and over again he says, what saith the scriptures? Even so must you be. When you are reading books, when you're reading professing Christian books, and I read now and then, I I read a whole variety of Christian books. I don't feel that I must. At a certain point in maturity, you, you may venture beyond what is clearly right here at home in terms of, say, these are the safe Reformed authors. At a certain point in maturity, you read other things, and yet you always do so with a kind of filter in front of your face as you're eating up these things. There's a filter there. That filter is everything you know of the word, but that requires you to know the word. Otherwise, you are susceptible. But here we've got this rule. Without scripture, can you imagine trying to debate, as the church has, doctrines like the Trinity without being able to show it in scripture? Without scripture, would you imagine being able to Go to something like Christ's bodily return or the structure of church government because that has been a major discussion too. As we're going to see at some later point, uh, not in this series, but coming up here, what does God say about what it means to be a human being, about male and female? What does God say about our role in the world according to these different distinctions? And so for a rule of all doctrine, he's given it to us. The third and final division in terms of how is scripture necessary, and there are far more than three, but we'll limit ourselves. How is scripture necessary? It's necessary for full spiritual health and godliness. Again, I say full spiritual health and godliness because clearly Enoch walked with the Lord, and then Enoch was not. And Enoch had no written scripture, but he walked with the Lord. But I want to challenge you right now. Imagine what your life would be like if you subtracted every single time anyone ever directly quoted scripture to you or you ever directly read scripture and all you had were the paraphrases that come from memory. So you had never read anything with your own eyes on the page and you had never actually heard somebody quote from the Bible. How would your spiritual life be? How impoverished would you be in terms of the things your faith clings to? 
And beyond that, is it not the case that God has chosen to exalt his word, even above his name, as it says, so that when he speaks, he more often than not is speaking through the scripture? It would be a case of malnourishment. Verse 31 gives an idea of this. Look at me. It says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There is the life that we associate with being declared righteous in God's sight, but there's the life, the vitality of being indwelled by the Holy Spirit and living unto righteousness. There is a life that is in principle counted to you, but here the focus is especially upon the transformation, all that results out of that initial faith. And it's through the word and especially of knowing who Christ is and meditating on him in the word that you will experience life and life abundantly. I want to be clear, it's not automatic. The word does not work in this mechanical way where if you just get all the facts in you, well, I've read the Bible through five times. It is possible to read the Bible and yet to not do so spiritually. When we take up the word, we do it with humility, asking God to commune with us. Asking God, and what does the voice of God sound like? It sounds like whatever the text on the page means. That is what the voice of God sounds like. But it sounds like not coming from merely outside, but there's an amen within. Where you say, this is true. This is what I need. God works that confidence in us through the word and then strengthens us for all that is in life. If you don't have the nutrients that you need, let's say you have a person who has some digestive issue. Maybe you've known such a person where their body isn't taking certain nutrients from the food they eat. Maybe they can't absorb enough iron and they become anemic and they feel weak. Or maybe they have an issue where their bodies won't absorb the calories that they need and they begin to waste away. They may yet be alive, but they're certainly not well. Scripture in all of its fullness, all the whole counsel of God is necessary for you to be the healthful spiritual person that God desires for you to be. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 4, verse 4, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And if you only get four or five words of God a day, it's going to take you quite a long time to get every one of them. The implication there is that we ought to be at least as hungry for Scripture as we are for bread. Which one of us would skip a day eating when given the choice? unless we really feel it's necessary. And I can testify that I've missed almost no days in my life. But do we not do that with Scripture? And it's because in our heart we do not believe it's necessary on a daily basis. Otherwise we would. Which one of us has not at some point had health issues because we did not believe what we were told by the doctor really applied as strictly as he said? And with the word, when God has... So filled our pantry with truth that we would walk by it. And I, I'm, I'm a pastor, and I'm guilty in this. That not every day is a day of going into the Word to receive nourishment. It's one thing to make a meal for others. It's a different thing to feed on it for yourself. 
All of us are being called by the Spirit, not by your pastor here, but by the Spirit through the Word. Believe it's necessary, and then believe, instead of just feeling guilty, the point is not to whip you from the back, it's to draw you from the front by the promise, you're going to feel better when you're in the Word more. You're going to feel stronger if you say, but I feel weak to read the Word. You're weak because you don't read the Word. But when you do read the Word and you meditate on the word, and you, put, you bow the knees of your heart before the word, God strengthens you. He does. How do we know this? Look at the people who are strongest in the Lord and look at how they treat the word. The relationship is always obvious. On the contrary, we do have a warning in Amos 8.11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. It is a true and the worst of all famines when we don't have the word, when the pulpits are empty of the word. I believe that a pulpit rarely flags unless the congregation also has lost a taste for the word in their private life. The pulpit should lead, but the pastor would not get away with it If the people were hungry for the word, they'd say, get back to the word. But where that hunger is not there, it's difficult to maintain the integrity of the church. Many other reasons could be added to this in terms of the necessity of the word. I only lay these before you. We've seen that God declares that it's necessary. He's appointed it as his means. In fact, Psalm 138 says something that is almost shocking. It says, You have exalted above all things your word. Well, what about God the Son? He's a thing, and the Holy Spirit. But the word is God's presence, power, will, truth, being made known to us in a way that we can access. And so he has exalted it as his means. How does he desire you to respond? Just a few ways that I want to encourage you with, exhort you by. First, take genuine inventory. This isn't something you do once. The point is not like a a once-a-year revival where we're all going to get... This is something to do all the time. Take inventory. Do I feel the necessity of the word? First, for mine and others' salvation. Apart from this word, how is anyone going to come to faith? If they don't hear it, how will they believe? And do you sense it for yourself? As we saw last week, the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. Peter says, who else, O Lord, have the words of life? And then for your understanding. If you want to understand key doctrine, it's fine to use Christian books that assist you. But again, those books are only as valuable as they are accurate to the word. And we'll see next week, Lord willing, that scripture is clear enough that if you study the word broadly, if you read through all the word, you will find things that are so clear that you can use them to norm everything else. There are lots of things in the Bible that say, I have no idea what this means. But if it's something you really need to know, it will be clear. There are plenty of clear places. And so we need to go into it for that reason, to have understanding. And then also take stock whether or not you feel the need of God's word for your godliness your sanctification. If you think of your sanctification as running a race or as 
exercise. It's sometimes called by the Greek word, word uh, gymnasia, from which we get the gym, discipline. If that's the case, are you feeding yourself enough to sustain the kind of activity that you face in this world, or do you feel very weak? I also exhort you, thank God. And I mean, that's not rhetorical. Thank him in your heart. He's given you the scriptures. He's preserved them literally through pools of blood down the ages of those who gave their lives to pass them on and to put them in our language. Think of somebody like William Tyndale gave his life translating the Bible into English. God, help us to have a hunger for it. But thank him first, and instead of again, instead of feeling whipped from the back, believe that he spoke these things because he desires to bless you through it. He's given it to you for your blessing. And then set a high, high value on the areas where we can receive the word. First of all, in the public preaching of the word. I tell you, it is a mystery that God has chosen to use the pulpit. It baffles me. Every decent minister does not understand why people show up other than the power of God. It is a lot to hear from one person again and again. But it's through the foolishness of preaching that God has chosen. He magnifies his power. It's not about the rhetoric. It's about whether or not it's faithful to the word. And so when the pastor speaks, we should hear it as this is, if it aligns with the scriptures, this is God's word for me today. And to listen attentively. Yes, the pastor gets in the way of a lot of that. It's almost like God is speaking and he's speaking at the same time. And it can be hard to hear at times. What is God saying here? But this is what God ordained. And then in your private time, in your private time, Store up the word as able. I'm going to read Psalm 119, 11 through 16, and then we'll close in prayer. Listen carefully to this. Let this be an encouragement to you. I have stored up your word in my heart, O Lord, that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Let's ask the Lord to bless it. Father in heaven, we thank you for having given us again a portion of your word. We thank you for having preserved it. We thank you that as many of us can are able to read. Oh Lord, thank you for the mental faculties and the people who were patient with us when we were young for having helped us to be able to take up the scriptures and read them. We ask that you would please work all throughout this coming week the desire, the hunger to know you. Help us to be like Mary who desired the better portion when she sat at the feet of Christ. We place ourselves there even now, for in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.